Hello everyone and welcome to the What The Hell Happened podcast. My name is Sam, I'm the host of the podcast and before we delve into our interview with film director, actor, playwright Marcus Roma, I want to issue a little bit of an apology because my technology when I recorded the interview uh, failed me a little bit. It didn't use the correct microphone. It used the inbuilt microphone on my computer as opposed to my external microphone. So I wish to apologise for the poor audio quality, but it's still a great listen. It's still a great chat with Marcus, and we have some great laughs, have some good uh, banter. Um, And I, again, just want to apologise. I am going to try and work on the issue and make sure it's fixed for the next episode. Uh, So that's it from me, and we'll crack on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the What the Hell Happened podcast featuring me, Marcus Roma. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the What the Hell Happened podcast, the show where we take a look at just what the hell has happened on our little blue planet this week. Today we have a very special gentleman with us today. He's a film director, a playwright, as well as an actor, and also an all-round generous person. It's Marcus Roma, everyone. Hi, Marcus. How are you doing? I'm really well, thank you, Sam. Thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to having a chat and catching up with you. Yeah. Last- hell's happened since we last met exactly (laughs) yeah that's great so um first off the first thing i wanted to ask was um where where were you born what sort of upbringing did you have well i was born in um i mean i know we sort of we we sort of met in yorkshire and i lived in yorkshire a long time i was born in lancashire i was born in blackburn in lancashire uh, a long time ago and um blackburn's um interesting place is sort of about 25 miles north northwest of manchester so it's in the heart of the northwest really and i grew up there and everyone's heard of blackburn rovers uh, so i grew up there and left there when i was 18 and went to live in yorkshire and i went to university in leeds so uh, uh, according to your wikipedia page you went to university to study as a dentist yeah this is true and you see the thing is it is out there on the internet so i can't it's 31 years ago since i have practiced as a dentist i did qualify and let me tell you, the reason I filled in my UCAS form, as it was then, was because I really wanted to go to the same university as this girl I sat next to in uh, in the sixth form. And we, she was going to be a dentist, and she wanted to go to Manchester. I thought, yeah, she's really cool. I really want to go there. So that's really shallow, but also absolutely true. And so I filled in my form with this idea of going, I want to go to university because then we can be together. And um kind of I didn't get into Manchester and uh, yeah it kind of went from there really so I did qualify as a dentist which is extraordinary I'm weird um, but I'm better at pulling them in than pulling them out now that's the way around isn't it yeah so in terms of working in the arts but I did work and I worked in um, I worked in uh, West Yorkshire I worked in Bramley I told everyone I was working in the Big Apple because uh, uh, that was funny Bramley Apple <laughs> and I worked in Bramley and I worked in uh, the health service and I was sort of there as an emergency dentist for about six years. So I did actually work in, after qualifying in Leeds in 83, yeah, a long time ago. Oh, oh those were the days, weren't it? 
Following on after your girl, your dreams, and it all comes crashing down. Really, just like, oh well. I really, I mean, this is going. I'm realising it's going to be heard by everybody. I've not really shared that story, the truthful story, until now, because that's actually that's actually what the hell happened, uh, and that's how it happened. What the hell is really the true story? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what we aim to do here. We try and have a look at what exactly what the hell happened. I actually had to have a, a tooth out not that long ago. It was actually during lockdown. Um, one of my wisdom teeth got infected. Yeah. Um, and that was very painful. I had to get an emergency dentist appointment. Yeah, that's a tricky, a tricky old, the tricky wisdom tooth. Yeah, I've had mine out. Yeah, it's not pleasant. Not, not pleasant. Anyone's listening, if you had your wisdom tooth out, hot salt water mouthwashes after you've had the operation for a few days afterwards helps to make it feel better. Yeah, there you go. I, I heartily agree with that statement. Top tips. <laughs> Top tips from an ex-dentist. Um, so you, what, what, what made you switch to performing arts? Like, how, how did that transition come about? But when I was at uni, I did a lot of acting and was in sort of comedy groups and reviews and all that sort of business. And I was got with some uh, a group of um, a group of us got together and we we had this kind of company that went away every year and we did stuff in the summer. And I used to like performing and making and writing and devising stuff. And and a lot of my colleagues actually who were, worked at that time though went on to work professionally. I mean, one a, a, runs a big theatre in Manchester now, and uh, we all started off as students, sort of larking about at weekends really and doing street street theatre performances busking going to edinburgh and doing busking stuff uh, and with mates really so I started off doing that and um kind of thought this is actually a lot more fun than pulling teeth out and let me tell you it's true it is a lot more fun than pulling teeth out so i really enjoyed um doing doing the acting and performing and writing and making and but also being part of it and helping to develop it and devise it and and being in that in that sort of driving seat with everyone else really it's a bit like being in a band, but we didn't play any instruments. Do you know what I mean? We were kind of a group of people that did stuff, and sometimes it was funny and sometimes it was serious, but we used to enjoy making shows and doing stuff like that, so that's kind of how it started. Okay. Um, so you you mentioned, like, how you got started in acting was, like, just, like, the indie group theatre thing. So what, what was your first, like, proper gig that you did? Well, I kind of got some proper gigs... Um, you know, I, I started to go for auditions and bits and pieces and things like that. And I was because I was working with people in that in those groups of there was a group of us in Leeds at that time. Um, some of them were professional actors and were working. And you know, so my girlfriend at the time actually ended up going on Coronation Street and was actually you know a professional performer. And and so I was around people who were who were there. And I managed to get an agent by doing some auditions and what have you, and started doing some some bits and pieces. But I was still working as a dentist at the time. And um, and then I got some theatre work. I uh, went off some some theatre work. We we toured Europe for three um, consecutive years. We used to go away for touring uh, Europe with, for three months every year. And the company's still going actually. It's still based in Leeds, called Alive and Kicking. And we used to go there every year, and we'd spend time travelling around Europe. It was like was that being in a in a you know a kind of a gigging group really? We had a van, and we used to go and perform in these big theatre spaces. So that was really interesting. But I'd come back and then do some part-time dentistry until the next acting gig came along. So it came to a point when I was having to juggle um, things until I got started getting some more things. I started getting bits of TV and bits of theatre and bits of film stuff. So I started to pick up some work, which meant that I couldn't do the dentistry commitment. So in fact, the the kind of the performing arts and the, the professional side of it took over because I was getting more work, um, which was you know really fortunate considering I was... A kind of a dentist who was chancing it. I mean, this is crazy, but uh, looking back on it, I just kind of went, "Yeah, well, I've got that work, so I can't do that part-time job. So I'll just keep getting work." And um, 
ended up working for a number of theatre companies and stuff who were around and about and going on tour, went on tour to Russia with a company based in Bradford called Major Road. And so we started to do some bits of work like that. And then I, in those companies, I started directing as well. And again, going back to that devising thing, making work, writing it, staying up all night, writing some bits, getting it ready, changing it for the next show. So all of that thing involved in making theatre. So I'm a theatre maker, a filmmaker, if you like. So I enjoy the making of it and the delivery of it. So that's what really kind of got to me because I always said yes to everything. So if, so if there's an opportunity going, I went, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I can do that. Even though I'd never done it before, I go, yeah, sure, I can give that a go. Um, so it's that kind of was my mentality at the time. I mean, I was in my 20s. That's what you do, right? Exactly. But it's, it's that sort of that gunning, that sort of passion that you get and you don't stop until you get it. You, you get that sort of quite early on. And then some people lose it. Some people sort of just go, oh, well, that's not going not gonna to be for me. And then... You've got to have another skin, you know, because I got, I mean, yeah, I've had lots of kickbacks and things that didn't happen. I went, I went for, I went, ironically, I went for a job, right? I went for a job to play a dentist um, in a, in a drama and they were filming it in the surgery where I worked and I didn't get the job. I'm going, I'm going for a job as me and I didn't get it. So I was thinking, so all of that stuff, oh, I got some skills. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me why you go for this job? Well, A, I work in this surgery and b i'm an actual dentist and you're you'll want to a dentist for this role i didn't get it so i realized that you know there are loads of times when you know you don't get stuff and there are lots of other things where you kind of get very close to things but you can't let that put you off you've got to keep plugging away because it's a bit like you know you're playing a percentage game and ultimately you keep persevering and, and something will get something will break through it's a bit like gaming you know you got to you keep working at it and you'll find your way around the outside and find another way in but you've got to keep banging on the doors really and just keep going for it that's my advice really mm. um so you you started your move into directing so when what when sort of did that happen like and when did you realize that this was your passion you wanted to actually like make and share stories instead of being in them well, I kind of, again, it's a bit like the kind of the transition between dentistry to acting. I kind of, I carried on still doing acting while I was directing. And again, the directing started started when it was, um, you know, you, you kind of get asked to run some workshops or maybe run a class or maybe teach something. or And you realize that you're still communicating ideas and you want to make things happen. And so directing isn't a sort of a mysterious thing. It's it's just making sure that everyone's turning up in at the same place at the same time and they've got the same script. And then someone says, we're going to start here, and then you kind of move it along. And so it's about working in a, a group of people. I'm used to working in groups of people and, and, and you know, in, in a room with lots of people. So that, those sorts of things are quite interesting. So it gradually sort of it just sort of moved across. And then I applied for some jobs and I directed some various bits, freelance and assistant directing here and there. And I applied for a job and, start, and started to run a company, which is called Pilot Theatre, which is still going. And it started off as a really small company. There were just two of us. Again, going back to a bit like the roots of student times, where you'd put shows, we had a van, and we'd take them out of schools or community centres or theatres. And, you know, we'd, we'd hire some actors and local people, and we'd build sets and all that kind of stuff. And so Pilot started off as a really small organisation based in Wakefield, and it's grown now to its international touring company, and it's a... National Touring Portfolio Organisation for the Arts Council, and we, you know, we, I ran that for twenty for the best part of twenty five years, and so that's a long time. But in that time, I was still directing for other other organisations and still working as an actor. So again, still keeping busy. And I think what's interesting when I work as a director, having worked as an actor, I kind of know how to talk to actors, and I don't want to sound that make it sound patronising. But I've been on the other side of the lens or the camera or the 
the footlights and I know what it's like when you're there. So I can kind of empathize when people are finding some way or trying to struggle to work out what to do next. So because I've sort of done it, I, I can kind of relate in a way that, you know, I kind of understand it. So I can talk to actors and connect with actors in a way that I know I've worked with some directors who can't do that. And the other thing is, as an actor, I've probably worked with about 100 different directors in various films and TV and theatre things. And I've worked with some directors who have been absolutely brilliant. And I've just stolen all their great ideas. And the ones who are absolutely crap, I've just not done what they've done. So that's how I've learned, because I've been in the room with lots of directors. But interestingly, most other directors don't ever go into a room with another director, so they don't know how they work. Um, but I've seen loads of directors working and some are brilliant and they really make you feel at ease. Well, like anything, you know, you know, when you're working with someone who connects and, and helps you and basically it's not like being a teacher where someone's showing you, they're helping you to get to where you need to be. So it's not someone who dictates and tells you to stand here and there and boss you about. It's more like, you know, how can someone communicate with what you need to do to help tell the story? And that's what I know. So I work with directors who are really good at that and ones who are absolutely bloody awful. And um, so I just copy the good ones. That's another bit of advice, by the way. Copy the steal from the good, steal the, steal the good bits from the people who were great and do it yourself, but then make it your own. There you go. <laughs> there you are. Um, so you mentioned Pilot Theatre um, and obviously you started that up and it was it started off small and now it's quite large. Um, what For people who don't know... Um, like nowadays, what what is Pilot Theatre? What does it do? Okay. Well, as I said, I left there in 2016 and I've uh, been freelance for the last four, four or five years. And um, uh, Pilot is a touring company, so it takes work into theatre. We were based at York Theatre Royal. It's still based at York Theatre Royal. And it would tour around the country, so it would go to theatres. We did, we did 960 performances of a Lord of the Flies, which ran between 1998 and 2008. So we did five different productions of that. We did 960 shows. You played to you know a million people, or whatever, and it was insane. But we that, that show would would play in sort of thousand seat theatres, and we had a crashed aeroplane on stage. But we'd go from theatres a week at a time. So some big theatres. So thinking of where you're, uh, this is so we played in Sheffield, um, Sheffield, uh, Crystal, Sheffield, um, also West Yorkshire Playhouse, uh, uh, Lyric Hammersmith, the State of Royal Stratford East. So most theatres in the country, most towns and cities have got a theatre. We've played in it. And we'd always open them mostly at York Theatre Royal. So and sort of, you know, sort of a 700 seater. And we play in those size of venues and we had... Lots of it, lots of um, technology in there. We had lots of projection and sound. Always had full soundtracks. I made them quite cinematic. So the kind of shows that we made were things were things like that. And we did a lot of adaptations. We did some um, we did science fiction. Oh my god, we did Blood Tide by Melvin Burgess. We did this kind of crazy thing um, set in the future. And yeah, we did we did Road by Jim Cartwright. So lots of play. We did plays, but also we made new stuff as well. Did an adaptation of a book called Looking for JJ about. Um, uh, a girl who's killed her best friend, and we did we did that and that won awards and stuff like that because again we had lots of video integration in that, uh, lots of live, uh, lots of lots of sound, uh, and often sometimes working with actors who were either on the on the cusp and they were they were they were breaking, and they were kind of new and emerging actors. So that's what we did. We often introduced lots of people who've now gone on to become you know really well known. They would maybe start their careers with us, and we do that sort of work. So, yeah, so that's the kind of stuff that we did, and it toured, and um, we'd deliver yeah, workshops and talks and things like that. But we'd probably tour for six months of the year. 
So it's a bit like being, as I say, being on tour is great because you get to see places up and down that you might not ordinarily go to. We've been to lots and lots of places, most towns and cities in the country, and you go there for a week or two weeks at a time, and and you you know you take your work there. So that's kind of what it does, and uh, yeah, travel about, being being on tour. One of the um, the things that you were involved with was the 2012 York Mystery Plays, um, which I was actually part of. Yes, I was. I, was, I, was, I remember. I was in. Um, I was in. I was one of the extras, and in the trailer, you can actually see me getting stabbed um, by a bayonet. Yes, in the First World War. In the in the First yeah. World. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Oh, it was great. Um, and the the spectacle of that was just astronomical, and that was that was a good sort of. I, I believe it was about a month and a half run, maybe two months, yeah. um, and it was set in the museum gardens, which is a yeah. beautiful setting, and. There was a lot of planning and things that took place. Um, so how how did you approach? Because you did the live streaming for um, the mystery plays, which I don't think had been done before in that way. Like you had the multi camera interface, and you could switch between them live as it was happening. How did you how did you approach that? Well, again, see, we we were involved with um, pilot. were based at York Theatre Royal. It was York Theatre Royal and Riding Lights who did the production, and but we did the live stream and a lot of the tech around it. And um, we managed to get some money from the space, which was part of a project for the Olympics. And in fact, we used some cameras that were used in the Olympics, which was really really cool um, because we used some of the, the cameras that were the remote cameras that would run down the um, the length of the sprint track in the athletics. So the, the kind of remote um, sort of robot cameras. Um, we also had cameras um, on, which were like they were again remote. On we had a backpack um, which had this satellite on. We had a satellite camera as well, which was remote. Remote. So we had six cameras, and um, we were doing lots of remote um, filming. And the, the the concept that we had was we wanted to make sure that people could capture any aspect of it they wanted so they could capture the backstage story or they could watch it as the kind of you know an integrated like you're watching the film or like we're watching the live stuff now and i've always been interested with with how you deliver live theater in a way that that that's kind of now become the norm and we started to do that so i'd really kind of been interested in in the technology around how you could do that so we had a company help us but again we devised it so we had a number of camera operators we had a number of remote cameras which were like computer controlled so this is going back eight years ago and they were all hd and um, you could live stream it was live streamed onto six windows and so even on an ipad then on a touchscreen you could choose your points of view and again, that hasn't been re- re- uh, reproduced, really. I mean, I think this, there's lots of innovation and stuff that's happened. And it, re- it gave a really interesting thing. We also had three different sound sources. So again, um, you could actually switch between, you know, you could hear the, the, the um, stage managers calling the cues and you could hear the backstage calls or you could hear the um, uh, what was watching. You could hear, the, the, the obviously, the performers. So we wanted to give people the opportunity to be involved and active. So it's a little bit like gaming, if you like. We wanted people to have an active engagement rather than something that was passive. Because often with, you know, theatre, you tend it's going to be passive. But a lot of people talk about immersive stuff now, and, and which is, you know, to do with gaming as well. But people having an involvement and an active engagement. So we wanted people to be there and sort of be switching between the views. And in fact, what happened was on the night when we when, when, when we were live broadcasting, and it was broadcast on BBC and it was live, because it was done with the BBC and the space, and which is an organisation that was funded to help us do that. Um it was the night that Mo Farah won two golds, right? 
And what was happening was people were watching the mysteries on their iPad or whatever, or on this laptop, but watching the t- TV and watching the Olympics. And people were tweeting both things of going, go Mo, the mysteries are great. They were watching both things. So we knew at that time people were interacting in a way that now has become second nature, people second screening stuff when they're watching Gogglebox or they're live tweeting alongside something. But that was a really new phenomenon. I mean, Twitter wasn't that old then. And so people were live tweeting and live sharing screen grabs and images and spotting their friends as well as watching telly and that for us was a bit of a breakthrough moment around how engagement can work for making life making stuff you know in that live space and so we were really proud of that and again that's led on to a lot of um, new digital developments that we've done in terms of delivering uh, technology and stuff for theatre in fact one of my interests stemmed back from that it's partly my science background if you're going to drill back into drill back into being a dentist, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm here all week, but probably not next week. Mm-hmm. But if you drill back, my science, my, my science training of how to sort things out, right, which is sort of a bit of the dental, how to fix things or make things or, you know, repair stuff, right the way through to how to tell stories came has come into that space. And I went to the TED conference in the States three times and then created a TEDx and then Shift Happens, which was conferences in York, where we brought over technologists and people who were working in innovation and gaming to discuss how the integration of that with arts and technology and storytelling could happen now. And in fact, with the company I've got now, which is a new company called Mutiny, we're doing exactly that. Um, So I've got a new company which is doing exactly that integration of performance, technology, and audience engagement, which is where there's a kind of sweet spot of delivery and making so that's exciting yeah i mean you you mentioned gaming quite a few times and obviously on this show we're very passionate about gaming and <clears throat> all things like that but it's it's slowly it, it, in fact it's it's more um per year in terms of income than film and television combined in terms of like like people actually spending the money and playing the games or whatever whether it's a multiplayer experience or single player experience and like the stories like for instance the witcher 3 which is done off a series of novels um by a russian um uh, writer I, I can never remember his name I, and if i try to pronounce it i'll probably butcher it so i won't um but they took that and ran a series of, of video games and they're coming out with a new game called cyberpunk 2077 uh next week is actually the release date um december 10th um and they is they're done by it's a company called cd project red and their approach to storytelling, I think, is second to none. Like, they have such a passion for just the little details and things, which I think, you know, is when you're doing film or even theatre, you have to have that analysis, and that, that sort of that small look at the, the, the small details, because you never know where people's gonna, people are going to look on the stage. You need to make it look believable or realistic or, you know, have that background. Exactly, you want to engage people. That's the same when we made the movie as well. I mean, the the, the idea of, of giving of working at the edge of te- of the edge of technology is something I've always been thought about as a, as an artist, as an, as a, a creator or a creative or a maker. Is I always think that every single creative or every single person who works in that in the in the kind of sector has always worked at the limit of and the, the maximum limit of the technology or the edge of it. 
I mean, even even sort of Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel on his back, he would have said, I want the brightest colour paint that's not going to drip on my head and it's going to stay up there. So I want the best paint. Don't give me the watery stuff. You know, so everybody, what can we get that we've got that we can absolutely maximise the, um, the, what, we, what we have there to help us deliver and to, and to develop new ways of doing things? And, I mean, nothing stays still. It's interesting, actually, when I was in the States, I met the head of development of Pixar Studios. I was doing some work out there, and he said to me, what's the, what's the biggest, uh, biggest challenge for you in your industry? And I was saying, oh, man, you know, it's the funding. It's really hard to get funding. He goes, yeah, I know what you mean. He goes, when we start a project at Pixar, the technology does not exist for us to complete it. I went, oh, my God, okay, that's the real deal. So they have to invent the technology to complete the project. But then I went, do you know what? That's exactly what happens in the arts and creative industries. We set out with an idea, and we will discover on the way how we're going to do it. We'll find out, we'll, and, and, and on the finding out, and on the way forward, we'll make some off-the-ball discoveries, which we go, oh, my God, that's amazing. Isn't right for this project, but we're going to pick it up on the next one. And that's about innovation and discovery. So, yeah, it's, it's having that interest. And But the, you, you said something really important, Sam, which is it's the story. If you haven't got a story, if you haven't got something there that's going to drive people into it, and you're going to engage and people are going to care either about character or um, the quest or the discovery or the uncovering or the mystery. If you haven't got something that's going to engage and capture people, you're going to lose them. So the story is king, queen, winner all the time. And it's from that that you can then really then work with the audience is to take them on that journey and to show them some magical things be that on stage film theater tv web or game the bottom line is that if you haven't got the story and the and the and the guts in place then you can have as many fancy spirally shiny objects and people aren't going to care so get the story front and center exactly um so going back to obviously you did and completed the, the mystery plays and it was live streamed very successfully and it's a shame actually there's not um i i've i've scoured the internet left right and center i can't seem to find a record of it anywhere like an actual recording of the mystery plays um it was a bit I, sort of i can get i can i can i can help you on that sam oh i can help i can help find yourself from eight years ago I'm, i'll have a little dig oh brilliant fantastic don't forget we had because the, the thing was um Almost four hours long. We recorded four hours of material from each camera. Six. We have 24 hours of material. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of HD material. And at that time, there was a lot of data story, a lot of data wrangling. So we had 24, we had 24 hours of, which is why we didn't then do a final cut of it. The idea was it ran live and it was there, but we never did the cut because the cut was what you want it to be. You could choose this, this, this. So we never cut 24 hours down we let it roll and people could choose the bits on the timeline and which camera view they wanted so that was the that was the that was the um to keep so to keep it varied and keep it different you could always go and review uh you know another bit or see it from another point of view see it from another character's angle see it from the understage follow the understage journey see you know your uncle putting the ladder up on the stage and holding it while someone's up stuck the best bits were when people were on the stage and they were like being held up on scaffolding and you could see their legs and stuff being supported, but you could then watch what their bodies were doing as they were out, out visible on stage. So you could see two halves of the same story. 
So it's at the roots of the tree. That's always cool. So, But we never did a final cut because you can't cut down 24 hours and then go, everyone's happy with that. Because he goes, what about me? Because you missed that bit when I came on as the penguin. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, that would be brilliant. Um, I look forward to seeing that, hopefully, if I can find myself. Um, so after you did that, um, you decided, for some strange reason, to, to do it all over again the following year for Blood and Chocolate. Um, and I managed to find um, the That's live stream. I found the live stream of that. Um, and unfortunately, the video is now private on the, um, the, the Pilot Theatre YouTube. Is it? Yeah, it's made private. Yeah, it shouldn't be. That's interesting. I'll find out about that, even though I don't work there anymore. That should be the case. Uh, because I think what they do is that I think they bring it out now and again. And I think there might have been something with music and people. Yeah, I think it might have been a number of times. Shouldn't be. Yeah, well, well I'll find that out as well. Yeah. Because it was, it was it was online for years. And um, yeah, it was, it was 2013. It'd be odd if they just taken off. It'd been on for seven years. Mm. Um, yeah, we, that was working with a company called Slung Low. And we had, it was, uh, there were 600 people involved in that. 300 uh 200 performers and then um 100 backstage but then all the and then 300 audience each night and that was a walk three mile walk through york with like with projection um you had headphones so you were listening to things far and away uh follow the stories of first world war it was first our pre-first world war um project and again that was really fascinating because that was a massive 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 thing with with live headphone uh, technology and audio stuff um, working with 300 members of the audience who've got headphones on, which is a lot, you know. And um, yeah, each night we was whether it come come rain or hail, because it did all because it was in October. Yeah, it was great. It was a real adventure, and it did it did it did really well actually. And again, that was another learning thing to see about a different form of engagement. But again, using the the the, the cutting edge of some of the tech that was really key for us, you know. Um, just really seeing how far we could push what we could do. And everyone's talking about doing immersive theatre now and you go into a place and you go into a, a, a warehouse or something and people are dressed up. Yeah, but we, we want to take over and lay a story on the whole city. And in fact, what we've done with Mutiny since then, we've done that in various places. I live in Cambridge now, so I moved from York. Um, but we've done it in places in East Anglia, so we did it in Kings Lynn, over an entire city with six projections across buildings. And so we started to develop some more work, which is really engaging audiences in, in those kind of ways, which actually works really well. So, yeah, it's exciting. But that was that was a fun project, and it um, wasn't without its difficulties. Uh, it's a big a big managerial and producing um, beast, but it was fantastic. And, you know, it really – you can't walk down the streets of York without remembering, if you've been involved in it, where certain things happened, you know, and what, what happened and what, yeah. what, what occurred. So yeah, it was an important piece. Obviously, people, if you haven't seen, it's a shame we can't point people to the to the to the um, URL to have a look at it because it, it gives you a flavour of the big scale projection across the buildings and stuff. Yeah, I remember watching it, and I was uh, I was at university at the time where I wanted to get involved, but I had to go away um, to do my um, my university degree. Yeah. Um, but I remember watching the live stream of it. Uh, I'm not sure whether it was live. I think it was the day after it was live, and it was it was on the YouTube channel. I remember watching it. I thought, wow, this is fantastic. It's a very beautiful story. It's very beautifully put together. And this section of the, the I remember this this the two sections that stick out in my mind was when that shipping container or that massive box, the front just falls off, and you see people like strangled in barbed wire and like running, just fro frozen. And that was very powerful. That was a truck. It was a forty foot. Um truck 
that wasn't there when the start of the show came in. So it came in every night, right? So it was a curtain-sided trailer in which we built the Somme, the Battle of the Somme. Uh, which we, we the, tra- the trailer once the show had started at one point the trailer would arrive we park it up and then they, they would the, the actors would install themselves on there so when people came around the corners this truck just in the middle of the road what's that they we drop the side down and uh, yeah it was it was those moments were just they were phenomenal really and um, yeah it's big vision I mean Alan Lane was is great he, he did that from Slung Low and um, that's part of their thing I don't they, they've never done anything as big actually in terms of scale, in terms of audience. And I think that, because again, it was that combination of us producing it that helped that to happen. But yeah, it's really interesting because it was it was one of those projects that people still talk about, actually. Mm. Yeah, the, the other one was, um, I believe I'm right in saying it, it was on um, uh, where uh, York Castle is. Yeah. Um, and the, the actors are on the, the top of the hill and the, the audience are on the bottom. And it's right at the end of the war when the, the guns are about to stop firing and he's just, uh, and he's like, oh, fantastic! The guns have stopped firing. Fantastic! And then all of a sudden, a shot run, rings out, and just a, a massive shower of red confetti for blood just sho- just flies up into the air. And it, and then he, this, it follows this this guy who who doesn't like. If, for those who don't know, um, I believe it was the the mayor of York who who said to give every soldier from York. A box of round trees chocolate because of round, round trees were quakers and they were anti-war and they were anti-violence so you know so they did they they were they they want they gave chocolate to people at the front that's exactly they gave chocolate they sent a box of chocolate from round trees yeah because of because they were because of their quaker uh background yeah it, yeah it follows this guy who uh who refuses to eat the chocolate and he just likes the smell because it reminds him of home and that that, that just just having that warm sort of sense come across him as he's battling across horrendous scenes across the the war, and then he gets shot and he and then his friend scoffs all the chocolate out of his box. I know it's one of those stories that happened, and you know, in a way, we managed to get hold of one of the boxes because I think number of thousands of them went out there because they were the first World War was the first Christmas um, gift, and they thought this is all going to be over by Christmas, wasn't it? That was the thing. But so everyone ate their chocolate, but only four or five boxes came back because, of course, for the box to come back it meant they hadn't eaten it. So that was our story, and um, and again we ran that with a story of a conscientious objector who didn't want to go, you know, and he was then feathered and stuff and, and ostracised by people in York because he was a conscientious objector. Um, so it was really about the sort of futility of that of, the, of that war, and, the, and particularly about young people and the and the young people, and particularly because you're making it in that town, and obviously Round Trees is now Nestle, but people had worked there, and on those streets in which we were telling those stories, those young people had walked and they had lived, and there were still living relatives who knew there were connections to the people who had lived and died, and who'd been on the roll of honour, um, and the kind of you know the memorial. Um, spaces in York who died in the First World War and it was just before we did it just before the whole 1418 thing happened you know we did it on the on the cusp of the start of that really the start of it was the end of 13 before the start of 1914 2014 so the anniversary so we did that on our cusp on the cusp of that but yeah it was Mike Kenny who did that and um, a really good story put together and yeah we were, t- we were telling a York story in Yorktown with for York people and we were in com- in co- including the people of York so we automatically had engagement and buy-in. 
But again, we want to incorporate technology and stuff and make sure people weren't sitting down or in an old way, but to give them an adventure. And all the people who are saying is, oh, you, you must be bonkers. You know, who's going to be walking down the streets in October, you know, for three miles? They, they want to be sitting inside a theatre, you know, keeping warm. Why would anybody – what about old people? They might trip over. You couldn't stop people getting we, – we people were fighting to get tickets, and no one complained it was raining. No one complained it was cold. No one complained we had to walk because – what we were doing is we were reflecting back the stories and the history of that city in a contemporary and innovative way, which is, I think, one of the things that I've always been interested in doing, which is around innovation, storytelling and um, engagement. So, yeah, same same kind of thing, really. That leads me on to my next question. So, obviously, when you live stream a production, what kind of obstacles do you have to overcome? Because, I mean, obviously, you'll have to have a fairly fast internet connection to connect to stream it online and things like that well yeah well obviously now it's a lot easier than it was then i mean i'm going in 2012 gosh eight years ago we had to we had to we had to um get permission to go into the university janet network which is the um the joint network which is the very fast fiber network which is the university system because we couldn't have done it on on domestic broadband now you can do that and of course everything now can can live stream so back in the day you had to have encoders so it would actually take the signal and encode it and then fire it up <laughs> to the to the satellite before it would then come down it wasn't satellite so to fire it up to the web to, before it would come down and we'd sit on it sit on a server and do it but now of course everything encodes and facebook live and everything's everything you can live stream stuff now on your phone so it just becomes the thing you can do um but so but back in the day i think what so what's interesting about it now is how can we make that now it becomes anybody can do it how do we make that better how do we improve that experience for the audience? So going back to a little bit about the audience choice or engagement. So at the moment, oh, sorry, I should have turned my, um, I should have turned my, um, if I turn my internet off, it means my emails don't come through. I'm sorry, I'm going to turn my mail off. Sorry about that. Sorry. Yeah, but it proves, it proves we're live, see, live streaming. So what we're doing now would have been unheard of, right? So mm-hmm. chatting across, across internet connection. Uh, so yeah, so you can cut down all that. But how, what the interesting thing now is how to make it better engagement and a better process. What's really interesting for me is that all the kind of NT lives and the National Theatre and the things that we've seen during lockdown, which have been the theatre productions um, live stream. All those live streams, right? They all look the same. And what I mean by that is they all got a similar feel about wide shot, close up, wide shot, close up. And the reason is they're all made by people by and large, who do outside broadcast football. So the outside broadcast team that go and do live sport were the first people into doing live broadcast into theatre spaces. So all of them that look the same, as in all match of the day looks the same. But, you know, for the, but what should happen is a director or a theatre or an organisation should have a different style. So when you're seeing something that's... When we see a film made by a certain director... We know it's by that director because of their style. So it's Coen Brothers. You know it's the Coen Brothers. You've got that style. Because um, all films don't look the same. And so therefore all theatre or all live streaming shouldn't look the same. Um, it should look different. And it should look different because of the artists making it. And so it's not about the technology. It becomes about the story and the people who are back to the makers again. So the big question now is, yeah, now we can do it. How are we going to make it really much better? How can we make that much a much more engaging process? How can we make that much more it really work? Because otherwise we're just transmitting something onto a 2D screen. And so there's lots of things that kind of working on at the moment, which are around, you know, where the point of view camera where the camera point of view is, 
where the cameras are placed. Again, audience selecting shots or viewpoints and POVs. Those are sort of things. So in the same way that you can change your camera angle in a game, in a single, in a, you know, a, in a in a game, you can alter the camera view. Um, and we've actually just built a, a new world in Roblox, which is the gaming platform. We built a big world, an entire world in there. This is Mutiny. We've got a theatre in there. And in fact, I'll give you, you can come and have a look. You can have a look around or any of your listeners want to have a look around. So we've built an entire world in Roblox, which means that people can go and explore there. But also you can change camera angles, you build your avatars. But when you go in there, you might also see some live performance or bands or music, and you can be in a game space, not to play the game, but you are there physically in an environment. But rather than watching a screen, you are then hearing and engaging within a an environment which is a narrative-based environment, which, again, is new. So we've been working on that this year as part of an R&D, which has been interesting. So there you go. It'd be, it'd be cool to see, um, like with theatre, like using virtual reality and having that sort of experimentation. Or sort there of is one at the moment. A friend of mine has designed it. She's just done a design, and that's that's working at the moment, the Opera House. But, again, the thing about, the thing about virtual reality is that you are then isolating your headsets – that's the, for that to work. You've got your headset on. You've got your, you know, your vision is so. And theatre is a shared experience. So I think there is something in it in terms of a design. But ultimately, when I'm sitting and watching something, I kind of, I kind of want to be able to, you know, yourself. If you're in a gig or a back, you want to be able to turn to your mate and shake and, and nod or kind of, you know, you you want to enjoy it with someone else, don't you? You kind of enjoy it through someone. Else. Sometimes if if I'm watching a film with my, you know, my son or my daughter, I kind of, if I, I'm enjoying it because they're enjoying it because they're seeing it for the first time. And you know what that feeling's like. So it's, it's sharing it with other people is part of it. So it's a shared experience. So there's something about the virtual reality stuff. And it's why we developed something called active reality, which is which is using tech and, and, and augmented reality. So it's using augmented reality outside but also with an with a live audience and live performances. So there's another way of having another layer of of tech and story or other content. I hate that word. Um, but you are doing it with other people around you. Because partly because I'm a, a glasses wearer and I've got prisms and and very focals and nonsense. So I can't use those headsets. If I, look, I, I those those headsets, the VR headsets, they don't work for me. They work for my eyes, so I kind of get don't really they don't I don't get on with them, um, and also I want to share the experience with mates and mm-hmm. colleagues and friends and and also as a director I want to see how the audience are reacting. Are the is it is this bit working for them? Because that's how I get feedback. If I'm in a show and there's like five hundred people in the audience, I'm like I'm not watching the stage. I'm watching the audience and hearing. No, oh, that joke that needs to be the timing on that doesn't work. Oh no, that works. There. No, they no they haven't got that. That hasn't. They're not watching them. So. You've got to see how it's working. So as a maker, the fact if everyone's got a motorbike helmet on and chuckling to themselves is, is really hard for me to evaluate. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that, uh, it's, a, it's a valid point. Um, there's a there's a, a game on Steam um, that's free um, called VR Chat that you can yeah. use with or without a headset. Okay. Um, and so people can like sit down and, and watch theatre or performances or whatever, and they can get okay. up and move around, but they're not actually interfering with the performance. So if okay. they need audience participation, they could, you know, you know, invite someone up and get them to 
do a dance on stage whilst they do something around them or whatever. And then you can still look and see your friends next to you if they're signed in and have that reaction. Okay. What's that called, Sam? It's called VR chat. Okay, thank you. I shall, I shall, I shall put it onto my research pad. Yeah, might be worth looking into because you can have because um, obviously if you use like um, HTC Vive or the uh, Oculus Quest or something like that, you can you have like limb movements and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can use it or just on a normal computer um, to just have a look around and walk around and people. It's, it's sort of like a big chat room sort of thing, and you can have people and people will watch sort of mini plays take place between like two people doing impersonations of famous like cartoon characters like Kermit the Frog or Miss Piggy or Jack Skellington or whatever. Um, and then they applaud or they boo or they interject or it, it's, it's a social space and it, it oh, might no, be really good. Thank you. Thank you. I'll look into that. Yeah, there you go. You can you can get on Steam, I believe. I'll do a, I'll do a quick bit of research whilst uh, I ask you. you this next question. Um, so how, how did you get involved in directing The Knife That Killed Me? Well, as these thinkers, I, yeah, well, I, I did the adaptation um, and I got hold of the rights of the book. I read the book and it had just come out and it won the Guardian um, Book of the Month. And I was, and I was, actually, I was actually, actually, this is not sound like a crap name drop. I was actually flying back from New York. That was in the days when we used to go to places. So I, was, and, but I, so, so I got hold of the rights of the book and... Um, yeah, asked if we could adapt it, and I got the adaptation rights, and then I adapted it with with Kit Monkman, who was we were working with KMA at the time with Pilot, and um, then we started to tout it round a bit until we managed to find a producer called Tom Mattinson, who was great, and um, we we then Universal said we liked the idea because again we were going to use technology. People who don't know, it's a it's a book called The Knife That Killed Me, and it was all shot on green screen. It was shot in a tiny studio, tiny tiny. In fact, you know it's tiny. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. I was there. I was an extra. Exactly. No, I remember it well. It was tiny, and it was a tiny little green room. But again, we wanted to use – so we are using technology of the time, again, at the edge of it. So we were hiring a red camera. This was in 2012. A red camera was costing us 25 grand a week to hire. My iPhone now shoots in 4K. Well, that was a 4K camera. So, again, how much time has shifted. Um, but, again, we wanted to do all the backgrounds and stuff because it was set inside this character's head. So the adaptation was set inside this guy who was, you know, potentially not not alive anymore. So it was the knife that killed me. So it was inside this character's head. So it was everything he'd seen or imagined or um, had witnessed. So that we created that in his space in a quite theatrical, hand-drawn way, which meant that we were able to then um, composite that. It took two years to composite that. So I directed, I co-directed that with Kit because I did the things in front of the camera and he did everything behind the camera. So all the post post production was done by um, Kit, and I did everything front end with the actors and the writing and the directing of the people in the room. So that was sort of the way it worked. Um, it was put together, and Universal picked it up, and they liked the script. So that, they put some money into it, which is kind of extraordinary, really, because like first time filmmakers living in York, you know, it's kind of unheard of, bonkers, really. But they gave us some money, and they distributed it, and um, and yeah, it went in cinemas and did bits and pieces, and it kind of we made an art house film for young people. But we learned two things from that. One is that art houses don't show films for young people in that way, and young people don't really like art house films. So we made an art house film for an audience that isn't really there. Um, So it's of interest, and I think it was a a really interesting experiment, and there were some nice performances and some actors who did some really good work and went on to do amazing things. Um, But it certainly looked like nothing else we'd seen before. But again, when you make new stuff, 
you make new stuff and you you learn on the way so having done that we've you know gone on to do other things and make other stuff which has all been part of that learning because everything you do leads to something else it just does you know it just leads to something else so again that was a really exciting period of time and also you know tricky because it was such a long process 138,000 hand-drawn frames man that's too many right and they were all hand finished you know so it's kind of crazy um but yeah so it was it was it was it was what it was and we we worked in a small place outside of selby in between selby and york and um in this old drafty old ex ex um, school come barn <laughs> mm. so yeah, it was that was an interesting time and uh, you know so it, it did i mean some nice things we went to film film festivals and things in fact i still it still gets shown at festivals and it still gets picked up and in fact i still do some work up in in up up in in the arctic circles the film festival which i went to which it was screened at and i still go back every year to do some work with their students and their film students and their acting students um and every year they screen it in this cinema which is amazing and um yeah so it's it's it, um it, we did really well in rome and various other festivals but again you could go into tesco's and buy it interestingly on the cusp of technology it was just the moment that dvds were like no one used dvds anymore we were so you can still stream it but it was a time when you could go into tesco and buy it on the shelf and so my mum could in blackburn could go and buy it from morrison's which is kind of a crazy 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 fun thing but yeah it was an interesting time and it's still it's still kind of you know it's still kind of um there were some things that we did and learnt in that in software and in camera moves and I mean, how to tell the story and how to... All I know now is how to tell it better because you learn each time. Yeah, it was interesting. I remember um, when it, when you first sort of um, started, um, like, to put it all together and you were doing auditions. I remember auditioning for the, the main guy. Um, and then, obviously, I didn't get it, but he did a fantastic job in the film. Um, but then uh, several months later, um, I remember our tutor coming in tony ravenhall um and saying that oh um we've we've been selected to go be extras in a hollywood film i mean we just couldn't believe we just, everyone looked around just like what is that <laughs> yeah yeah no we're doing we're doing it later on this week we'll have a coach who will take us out and we'll yep, do all the stuff. yeah how, how did how did how did that start like how did you decide to use us well, because obviously we wanted again. Okay, we were based in York, and we you you were you were at the college, and we knew people were doing drama and people who were performing arts. We needed some people who could come and do that, and also because it, it was set in a school, we needed some people of the right age. And so you know that's what we went. I mean, I mean, I know Tony for years, and he used to run the the touring company out of York Theatre Royal. So we kind of had a relationship, and we'd known and done workshops and stuff. And we knew all the students were great there, and they and they and they were up for it. It was also part of your course, I think. I think it became part of your course, and you yeah, got assessed. You got marked on it. Yeah. You got marked on it. See, so it was a, it was it was a win win all round. No, you came and did a great job. I think we fed you and stuff, didn't we? Feed you and stuff. Yeah, we had. I think we had some like sandwiches or something like that. And yeah, I, remember, I remember the piece of the piece of direction you gave me. We were just like, oh, right, okay, we're, we're gonna die. No, no, just... no, it was it was good. No, it was a good piece of direction. It was just like you just came up. You had a pack of extra extra um, peppermint gum. You just like right, chew that. And then I popped, popped it in my mouth, chewed it, and just like, right, I want you to look more harder, more harder. Like, yeah, you want it, you want it, yeah, you want it, you want to do someone in. I was okay. like, yeah, come on. Just, just, to, just to be clear to everyone listening, this was about, you were part of this gang that was in the fight and all that yes, stuff. Yes, yes. Yeah, so there was a massive fight and stuff like that. And so having coming in and stuff and people, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Did you ever see it? Do you ever see it at the end of the day? Do you ever get hold of yeah, it? Yeah, I bought, I bought it day one. It came out on iTunes. Oh, well, they, I've done that, then in which case, I should have sent you a copy. But thank you. That's great. Yeah, no, it was it was what it was, and I think and it did what it did, and it and it was um, a really brilliant thing. In fact, it had lots of other knock on effects, which are really interesting in a way that, you know, in a kind of small way, it helped York York to become the UNESCO City of Media Arts because, as part of the UNESCO, it was a creative city network, and it was the first set of centre of media arts in the in the in the UK, and still the only centre of media arts. So York has that, and it was a basis of we'd done the green screen thing of of Knife That Killed Me, because of Revolution Games and Charles Sessler and all the work of Broken Sword and all of that work, um, because of Blood and Chocolate, and because of some of the technology we'd done on all the TEDx and shifts and kind of live streaming things. The kind of buzz around media arts and interface with performance, it kind of got us on the radar. So we applied. So the city applied, and we applied for this thing. We got this designation. So in a way, the kind of legacy of that, and then what's happened from that is that York is still the city of media arts. It is the guild. It, it created a guild of media artists, and they do the Mediali, which is the which is every two years as a media arts festival in York now. So the legacy of that and the stuff that you did and came along to do that, and we made that, has sort of had that lasting impact, if you like. Now, people won't necessarily know that story or the, the through line of it, but that's the truth of it, is that the stuff that we were making around that time of 20, between 2010 to 2014, there was like a four-year gap of time, a period of time, which York was kind of punching above its weight with people like Bright White and KMA, um, the stuff at the university, the film we did. All of that stuff was kind of on the cusp of media, arts, tech, gaming. And Charles Cecil with the Revolution, with Revolution, they just crowdfunded their thing and Apple and they were, they were like number one Apple um, download and they were part of the 12 Days of Christmas on the Apple Apple um, App Store, you know all that kind of so the kind of little things which, when you put them together, it made quite a body of work for quite a small city really that hadn't had that reputation. You know, it was kind of medieval. But the moment you start, we started to mix it up a little bit. So that was so I'm really proud of that. Even though I don't live in York anymore. That in some way that the kind of legacy of that work was was sort of a, a range of activity that led to that, which is which is cool. The one of the main actors that you you secured for the role um, of the father was Reese Dinsdale, which ah. I know um, very well from um, which I probably watched far um, far earlier than I should have done uh, from Threads um, in 1984, um, which is a very powerful piece of um, uh, direction. Yeah, brilliant! Um, it's a brilliant uh, piece. Of it was made for £50,000? I can't, I don't know, but it was, it was, a, it was a very, very small budget for the BBC. Yeah, it was great. And in fact, Reese lives, still lives in North Yorkshire. He still lives in, lives in Harrogate. And in fact, he became patron of Harrogate. I went, to, I worked at Harrogate Theatre for a couple of years and he's we got, got him in to be patron. He was great. He did a great job in the film as well. He's a really nice guy. And he's a, and he's a, he's a, he's a really um, solid guy in terms of who lives in Yorkshire. And he's worked at Westchester Playhouse. He's worked at uh, he's worked all over the place, Square Chapel. But he's he's on he's on telly now, and he's he's in Emmerdale, he's on Curry and all that stuff. So he's been a really solid actor. I remember him from a thing called Thief Takers as well. He did that um, right the way back in the day, um, uh, which is a police drama. But no, he's a, he's a cracking actor, and he's from Normanton. And you know, one of the people who's a real sort of 
you know, is a real passionate advocate for living and making your work in 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 Yorkshire, and I and I'm really hats off to him for that. And he's also a brilliant actor, and he's really cool. Mm. He's really nice to work with as well. He came and did three days and was was really smart on it. Yeah, he's he's very talented and um, seems like a very uh, nice person. Um, yeah. I was very very. Uh, I was very sort of I was very shocked with his performance because it's, it's very different from from what I've seen him in Threads, um, but also somewhat similar because obviously he plays a father in Threads, um, even though his child is unborn. Um, so the the technology behind the film you've mentioned this earlier on it, it, the technology is is fantastic it, it, it's even though it's just a massive green screen. I'm assuming that you took inspiration from that from films like Three Hundred. Uh, 300, 300, okay, there were certain touchstones in our reference point here. 300 was one of them. Uh, the AHA video, Take On Me, from 1984, which is the hand-drawn thing, because we said because we kept saying it mustn't look like the AHA video. Mm. That's what we kept saying. So that's what it hadn't got to look like. 300, but also, um, what's the film by Lars von Trier? Dogville. Dogville is the film where it's all done out on a black and white floor with white tape, and it's Lars von Trier, and it's got um, Nicole Kidman in it. And it's basically done on a soundstage where they've just gaffer taped the, the houses out. So people are in the houses, so it's all black and white. So they're black and white aesthetic. So it's Dogville 300. But also, um, the, other, the, other one, the other one was Sin City. Hmm. Sin City, because again, they had their revolves and how they did the revolves in Sin City because they were really organic and we had an organic circle. So we had a revolve because you don't revolve the cameras, you revolve the actors. So we had a big revolve in the middle of the floor for some sections. So we do that. So Sin City and um, yeah, 300 as well. But 300 is interesting because it looks amazing, but the story is not very good. Hmm. He says, I didn't, I wasn't engaged with the stories. I couldn't really know who was who. You kind of, you kind of get. It's just, it's just lots of battle scenes, and I remember it being not very interesting. <coughs> but again, Sin City was our Sin City was our number one, um, and uh, with Mickey Rourke in it. So yeah, so again, and that and that because that came out of a graphic novel. So we we had graphic novels and those sorts of things in our head, and the storyboarding of it was very graphic novel, um, and lots of movements and camera movements in that. So that was interesting. Um, but yeah, what was interesting as well is that the 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 it was all students at the university who did they were ex students that did who did all of the um, visual effects the VFX team who were again they were writing new software and stuff for it they were having we were writing new code to help some of the things happen and that was interesting because we were at the edge we were it's a bit like the Pixar thing we were having to invent some of the technology to enable us to finish it in terms of what we wanted to do. There's a whole heap of legwork leg work and rotoscoping and stuff that they were doing, which is amazing. But yeah, a lot of the stuff was, was um, working in some, some new, some new code based stuff, which was again, interesting and working with some, you know, some new software to help us deliver that stuff. And again, now if you look at it, it looks pretty dated because of course, it, but at the time, at the time it had that game, it had a game aesthetic it had it had it had a game aesthetic, uh, which was interesting for us as well. Um, we didn't want to make it like a game, but it did have some of those aesthetics in it in terms of the camera moves in the computer. Fantastic. Well, it's very very interesting to pick your brain and to get you to tell your life story and or your experiences. Um, but now we move on to uh, the new segment, 
of the show. Um, and I've I've picked out a story because this came out uh, a few days ago now. No, it was yesterday. Um, so uh, uh, Warner Brothers have come out with this massive new plan uh, to release their upcoming films, both on their streaming service in the States, HBO Max, as well as um, uh, in cinema simultaneously, which you, I, I don't think has been done before. As, as a filmmaker, how do you how do you respond to that? Like, do, do you think it's going to damage the craft? Do you think it's going to encourage it? The more people end up seeing films, the better it is, Okay. I'm a big advocate for streaming and also engagement because that's about access. I love seeing things in cinemas. I used to love seeing things in cinemas when I could go. Um, I've got a projector in my house. I've got a projector. I've got a projector I put on me on my table just over here. I haven't got like a projection room or a cinema room. I've got a projector I stick on my table and pull a screen up. I like watching things on big screens. Yeah, I like doing that. But people can do that in their homes now in a way which is quite interesting. Um, I think that the more people will see stuff, the better it is. I'm going to tell you a little story because, again, you're, you're, you're too young and won't remember this. But um, back in the day when videos came out, VHS, I'm talking about video cassettes, right? When they came out and they had films on it and you could go to a video shop, everyone said that was going to kill cinema, right? The fact that you could watch a film in your house was going to kill cinema. It had the adverse effect because more people watch more films. Cinemas then had to up their game, and they created massive multiplexes blossomed in the 80s on the back of people seeing more films, okay? So I have got no problem with people seeing films. What's ne- what Netflix is doing at the moment, Netflix is, 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 has, has tipped the game anyway, so we're already there. So the fact that Netflix are producing and making and delivering high-quality content like the other s- streaming providers are now getting onto the game, game of, because it doesn't, it doesn't mean that's any lesser... So seeing something, I, I saw Enola Holmes, which is on Netflix, which is actually my brother-in-law was the director of photography on. Enola Holmes is uh, written by Jack Thorne. It's the, it's the one with Millie Bobby Brown in. And, it's, and it's, it's, it was going to go for cinemas, and it's gone on to Netflix, and it was, it's been massive, right? I don't know whether you've seen it. It's massive. It's on the watch list. Yeah, yeah and, they've, and they've, it's, it's really one. It's, 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 and it's great. And they've commissioned the next one. Okay, Black Mirror. Come on. It's on Netflix. I mean, this, this, we're talking about stuff here which is at the edge of stuff that's happening. I'm very happy to go and see stuff in cinemas. And I'm very happy for that. But it still means more stuff's being made. Okay, More stuff's being made in a way and in a new way that's giving more work, more opportunity, and more um, access to seeing a, a greater diversity of material. And I'm big about that. In the old days, back in the film industry, when it's big studio systems, not all the people work with each other, that was when it was all closed. Come on, we don't want to go back to those sorts of times. So in a way, there's more openness. And the fact is that more stuff's going to get made. I don't care where we see it. I'll go and see it in a cinema. I'll go and see it on screen. I'll watch it on my phone. I'll, you know, Yeah, we want story. We need stories. We love stories. And we want to find the best ways to present them. I think there's next iterations of them as not cinemas, but they're going to be in outdoor spaces or on locations. And other. think about we always have to think about going to a cinema. Other places can can host it, you know. So I, I, I think it's smart, and I I, I don't think it's a problem. Um, cinemas will maybe have to change, or they may have to change their programming, and maybe they put some diff- maybe they program different stuff as well. Yeah, I'm kind of 
that's fine. It doesn't mean that films aren't going to get made. In fact, more films will get made. And I don't have that distinction. You don't think of Netflix as, is it TV? Is it film? Actually, it doesn't matter. It's good. It's material and good stories. So I'm, you know, I don't think cinemas will stop. I don't think they will, they will, they will stop because they, they offer a different experience. Um, but in a post-COVID world, again, we're going to reevaluate all of our public spaces and our public social spaces again. So this is to do with that. And we're in that post-COVID space. And that's why they're doing that because it's good for their business at the moment. Because otherwise they're not going to get people through the doors. Because even once cinemas open, people are going to be reluctant to go back anyway. So we have to think about it. We have to reevaluate and to reimagine and be recreative and recreate what those experiences may be like uh, in the future. And so we are living in shifting times, but it doesn't mean to say it's less creative or less work is going to be made. So I'm, I'm an eternal optimist about that stuff because there's, there's always new stuff around the corner which we don't know yet. And I'm excited by that because new stuff will happen. And you're right, the integration of games and the, you know, the, 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 the business model of gaming and the, the revenue model of that, it's, it, it knocks all that Hollywood stuff into a, into a, a, small, a small bean pot anyway in terms of where the, where the money's at. So, yeah, more stuff will get made. Hmm. And I, I would argue as well that um, because because uh, obviously some networks will be a bit hostile to this sort of only on streaming. I know that Universal, when back in March, April time, when Trolls Two came out, they were very hostile. Like uh, AMC, who own Odeon in the UK, um, they were very hostile and said they're not going to show anything from Universal ever again because this is this going against their agreements and stuff like that. But I would I would say that you know those studios who don't want to do that streaming stuff, they need to up their game because and create the intense stories and believable characters that you need um, in a film or a TV show. Um, to earn that space on the big screen, on that big projection, that big experience—it's an experience at the end of the day. Um, because otherwise, you know, because you see Netflix coming out with, you know, The Crown and Stranger Things. It's like, you know, fant- utterly fantastic and visually pleasing stories, which well acted, work, good story. Yep. You know, it's, it's constantly moving forward, and it, you know, it keeps your attention. And a lot of, I think, before COVID, I think cinema was sort of starting to have a little bit of a slump. They, they couldn't really put out good stuff. A lot of it was sort of mediocre or average. Um, and I think, it's, it's especially post-COVID, I think you're right. I think it's, it's going to change the way we do things. And I think they'll have to seriously think about whether it's worth putting it in the cinema or whether to just send it to a streaming service. Yeah, but maybe also, you know, you cinemas have to then think about what they can then what they can then offer, you know, and what they can what can what they, what else they can offer. Because there may be some live elements to stuff, and there may be some more engagement. You might be able to sit down with the console and interact with something that's happening on a big screen. You know, there's ways. You know, why why are there not sort of game you know games or other things that happen, or, or what products are being made which allow that sort of engagement and a new form of engagement? Because you've just got to be thinking about what is it people want. What do you want to do? What do you want to go and see? You know, I think people are more and more wanting to be less. They want to be more active and less passive. Certainly, post COVID, we're going to go, want to go out and have live experiences because we've been we've been inside. So, in the same way as the music model is that you know everything moved online and everything was streaming and everything was, you know, people weren't buying CDs and people are buying vinyl now actually, so that's interesting. But people people were streaming everything, uh, but then you, you, your tickets are so much to go and see to see people live because again you want that experience. Uh, you can get all that stuff for free. 
and so you want to be, you want to be able to go and do the stuff where you can you know you can see the bands live or the gigs live or the films live or whatever you know whatever what else can we do that that that, that storytelling and narrative and gaming and entertainment and some of that sweet spot I was talking about which we're trying to work on with mutiny is the interface between live and performance it's tech digital and it's public engagement so there's something in that kind of that 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 Venn diagram which is you know we actually want all of that in in varying amounts depending on what the project is because we don't want to all be sat there and be be given stuff likewise we don't want to want to be focused in just doing that so there's a little bit of something in the middle it'll happen People look back on this podcast and go, they foresaw it. It was going to happen. <laughs> exactly. It was spoken uh, about in the in the a hundred years ago. <laughs> um so the next story we've got to cover. Um finally we have a vaccine for COVID. Uh much to many people's delights. Yes. Um and more details have come out about who's going to be first to get the uh, Pfizer BioNTech vaccine when the uk rollout begins uh, next week uh, which will probably be this week when you're listening to this um so basically the uh the, if you don't know um the pfizer BioNTech jab is around about 95 percent effective in preventing covid19 and it works in all age groups uh the government secured around about 400 uh, 40 million doses of the vaccine enough to vaccinate 20 million people as you need two doses um and they need to be administered around about three three weeks apart for the full effect uh, and around about 800,000 doses are due to arrive uh, by uh, next week. Um, It's being distributed uh, to people who are in care homes, who work closely with vulnerable people, uh, as well as people over over the age of 80. Um, I mean, this is, this is, great news and it's it's fantastic that we've actually you know it's such a short space of time as well because i mean take, take a look at the um hiv uh and aids or aids virus um it, we still don't have a vaccine for that um there's no way of i mean there's um uh, ways to stop you prevent to prevent you from getting it to stop it from attaching itself to you but that's just a preventative treatment you know there's no cure for it it's just treatment at the end of the day um and so the fact we have this now so quickly um, is is fantastic, and I believe this will really help the arts to get back to where it needs to be, to get people, you know, get bums in seats in theatres, in cinemas, whatever, and to watch and experience theatre or film or TV um, in new and exciting ways. Um, but also as well, I think, you know, COVID has made us take a long, hard look at our society and how reliant we are on intimate spaces and physical contact and things like that. And I think we're going to have to rework a lot of stuff, um, especially in theatre, um, having so many people so close together, I think, you know, to try and maximise profit as well as getting as many people as possible to see the, you know, whether it's a pantomime or whatever, um, and I, I, I just think that it's 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 great all round. Um, it's fabulous news. It's really yeah. amazing. It's really amazing. And obviously, you know, kind of the people who should get it first are the ones who are either in front line or the most vulnerable. And you know, my mum's eighty two, and my mother in law's eighty nine. Yeah, they they should 
they're getting it, you know, because they're in a high risk group. And again, the, the people who are working in care homes and those, those kind of frontline workers and staff, and frontline workers in 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 the health service. I'd obviously say because I've been worked in the NHS. I'm kind of a passionate believer in in science. I'm not an anti-vaxxer by any means, and that, that, that makes me so cross. All of that kind of stuff. It makes me another kind of misinformation stuff. And really makes my yeah, it makes my blood boil when people are spouting nonsense. Um, and so I really I'm really keen that it's a really exciting time, and you know, and, and science and experts prove themselves right actually, rather than people who you know got some got an opinion. And I'm really 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 delighted that it's coming. And obviously, it's a massive massive um, thing. We're not out of the woods. It's going to take at least six months before everything gets turned around. Anyway. But certainly those people who should be getting that first are, you know, frontline health workers and people in care homes and high risk and vulnerable groups. And because it's through protecting those that, you know, we can we can start to bring the bring the the, the severity of the, the pandemic down. And so it's about taking the priorities and getting people getting people sorted. But I've got no time for the kind of <laughs> not taking it stuff. That kind of just I can't believe it. anyway, kind of I've been watching too much CNN, I think. But yeah. <laughs> but the thing is it is it is a genuine problem i mean you get these people you know you get um young people who um go out and throw these covid parties saying oh come catch covid here this is exactly why the pandemic is is as worse as it is because then they go away and they spread it to their families they spread it to their housemates then they go and spread it and it grows and grows a snowball effect and the, the, the people who refuse to wear masks because they think it's infringing on their human rights is if they're only thinking about themselves as opposed to the other members of their family who will no doubt get affected by the virus and would most likely kill them. Yeah, I know it's just a lot of self. We're living in a kind of a crazy world at the moment, and that selfish nature. I can't. Yeah, it's just it's it's not it's nonsensical, and there's there's also a lot of a lot of misinformation, disinformation, and and um and nonsense talked about at the moment so yeah um and but the fact is that it's great news it's going to be you know really 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 good and, and brilliant you know life-saving which on every level and you know and we but we need to still in the next six months still do all the other distancing and, and social measures and and rethinking and reevaluating how we're gonna you know how we're gonna address things because it can't it can't continue how it was before and um you know, there is, there is an opportunity to to recreate some 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 things. I, I mean, I do think that you know, theatre or that sort of thing is, you know, it needs to reevaluate what it's doing. That's a, but I'm saying that you can make things happen in communities. So, for example, um, blood and chocolate would have been an ideal sort of COVID safe, if you like, because you're on your own with your headphones, walking through with socially distanced, watching a piece of theatre. You can listen thirty meters away. It's on your headphones. So. But so theatre doesn't have to necessarily be all cramped up in a small room. So again, be creative about what you're making. Where are the stories you're telling? Where are you sharing them? How else are you helping to distribute them, maybe digitally? And what else are you doing with the communities around you to help deliver that? But yeah, the, the vaccine is going to go a long way to helping um, restore that sense of normality. But it's going to take it's going to take some it's going to take considerable time for that to sort of get back on the track again. You know, it, it, isn't, it isn't a silver bullet, an overnight thing. This is this is there's still a bit of a there's still a bit of a long haul uh, track that we're all on, and so we've got to still be mindful of that. I think. In the next story, we have uh, well, this is uh, this makes my blood boil. Uh, CEX, or as they try to be cool and name themselves, Sex in their adverts. 
they are a store in the UK, um, and I believe in parts of Europe as well, and maybe the States, I don't know. Uh, the, it stands for Computer Exchange. Uh, they've come under fire uh, from customers and uh, staff for an eye-watering £815 PlayStation 5 price. Uh, now, this is... Uh, personally, I, I find this disgusting behaviour, uh, especially because it's second-hand. Um, it's already been handled once by someone. Um, I'll just read the article here and people can make up their own minds. Uh, High Street trade in giant CEX has come under fire for its £815 pre-owned PlayStation 5 price, a vastly inflated price compared to the console's standard £450 RRP. A quick check of CX stores local to Eurogamer's Brighton office suggests there's a decent amount of pre-owned PS5 stock available, but customers and even members of the chain's own shop staff have expressed its taste at the pricing. Uh, basically, they're trying to cash in on this shortage of PlayStation 5 consoles that's going on at the minute. And it's been a massive issue. And I discussed this on the program uh, last week with the 8-Bit Geek. Uh, if you haven't listened to that, it's a great show. Go back and listen. Um, but uh, th this whole console price scalping thing is just getting completely out of hand. People are buying up stock left, right and centre. And it's just getting completely bonkers. And they're, they're trying to make a quick buck, essentially. And they're paying people more than the price of their console in cash to get the consoles in so they get more profit. So people are actually willing to sell their PlayStation 5 consoles for around about £200 more than what they paid for it. Um, and it's just this is just adding to the issues that we have at the moment in terms of you know making technology available to everyone, especially after the pandemic, because this is, I mean, especially for me and my wife, um, this is, the gaming has been a massive rock to cling to it's how we've stayed sane um over the past few months we're huge gamers and we we love exploring worlds and characters and stories and things like that um and just having fun with friends um and it's 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 really sad to see that the world has been demoralized at this point where we have to essentially scalp prices to get a quick buck to get this you know, this market is just out of control at the minute and eBay is flooded with them, very flooded with them, all, all kinds of people. It's just, it's horrible. Um, yeah, it's sort of like any ticket touting. I mean, the thing is, the bottom line, it's capitalism raw and in your face straight away there. That's exactly what that is. In fact, because the people, you can't blame people. I think what you can't blame is if someone has something and it's worth more than they got it for, they can sell it. You know, it's kind of, that's just in the way of the world, isn't it? And it's sort of in the way of the world that's been made in our, it's been made, and we've made it, you know. So if you if you if you have that stuff where people want to make that fast buck, and they and they sell it for two hundred quid more than they bought it, then you know what my my point is that then if people didn't but if people didn't buy it at eight hundred and fifteen or eight hundred and fifty whatever it is, then they then the CEX wouldn't be able to sell it at that. So the fact is, people are still wanting to buy it, which again is of course. That's not about an equality and level playing field. That's why people have got money who can afford it. So again, it's creaming off that, and that's that's it's crap. I agree with you. But the bottom line is that you know you don't have, the people don't have to buy it. You know you can. That's the thing. So the idea of feeling you need to have it, I mean, yeah, have it at the price it's meant to be or wait. Mm. I know that's hard, but you don't have to pay for it. So they can if they, if they they wouldn't be able to sell it at that price if people weren't willing to part with their money. 
Um, but that's your that's capitalism, isn't it? That's what it is. And you know, yeah, and sometimes that absolutely sucks. And it's and it's because it's not about equity, equity, and it's not equitable. Mm. Uh, but I, I can't. In some ways, I also can't blame CEX because, in a way, they've had a terrible time and they've been closing their business model shot to ribbons. And you know, they just all they they can hold their hands up and go, "Hey, look, people are willing to pay it. I mean, I, you know, I'm just I'm just I'm just I just put it on the desk, and people are going to walk in. What am I going to do? You know, because their business model's been knackered. So in some ways. Well, I think if people are fool enough to buy it, then more fool am really. Um, I won't buy one, and um, I think that you know there's nothing you can really do about it because again, it's always happened on eBay or whether people are doing selling ticket touting tickets for um, gigs or whatever. You know, there's always been a sort of a black market for people who want to pay above the odds because they haven't got what they what everyone else has, appears to have. And yeah, I mean you could or you could you could create a Let's boycott CEX, you know. But what what would that do, really? You, know, you mm. could boycott. I'm not say so you're not going to go there anymore. But we yeah. say we might. Yeah, I think I think I can't. You know, I just think that what will happen is this has always been the case that things will blow because then the supply will happen again. Mm. Then we'll be on to the next thing. It'll be the next one. You know, what I mean, it's just mm. a bit because it's that. But that's the, the that capitalism wheel, which is you need the next, you need the you need to keep keep going, but you don't actually. You just need to back. You need to. You need to. Um, you have to reprogram the games for your old previous consoles to re upcycle them. Mm. What, what do you do with old? I mean, the thing is, it's a bit like when I think. I think things will come out. My advice is, hang on to the stuff you've got now, all of it, because in time that'll come back again. I guarantee. Mm. I mean, vinyl. I have had vinyl albums for forty years. They've come back again, right? But I think. I mean, I was trying to find. If I, I was trying to find a game, a, a Mark One Game Boy. The big, the big chunky white grey plastic one, right from the late eighties. I was trying to late eighty eight, trying to find one. Hundreds of pounds. So hang on to the stuff. What will happen is it will come round again. So those games, because in fact the games are it. It isn't the technology; it's the games. So if you enjoy playing games on certain consoles, in fact I play with my son. My son lives in Madrid, but we play. We're big. We we were Nintendo. We were we were we were a Nintendo family. Uh, so we grew up with Zel- Zelda's our thing. Mm. So Zelda, Zelda's our thing. So we still go back and play Zelda on the SNES because mm. you know what? The game is brilliant, and the moment you hear that town and the eight-bit music, it takes you back, and it's great fun. And so there's a retro. We we retro bought SNES. Okay. So what I'm saying is that things are things. It's about fashion. So th- I think things will come in and out, but yeah. But if you needed one for your work and you haven't got one, I understand that's a pain. And you might need to do something about it, but everyone else can either not be put allow them to be pressured into that space, or to rethink about what they've already got and to revisit and wait and have delayed gratification, and then work out whether it was worth it. I don't know. Have you got one? Yeah, I managed to get one through game um, back when uh, the pre-orders first went live, and luckily we were one. Of, we were the first wave. And um, we managed to get one at the recommended retail price. Early adopters, you see, you will win out at the end, but you weren't tempted to go and take it out to CEX and make a make Oh, no. No, 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 no. No, no. Couldn't know. Yeah. But I can't, but I, do you know what I mean about I can't blame people who have got that mm. and they might be short of money. I, I kind mm. of have a thing where, 
But if, it, it's, it's it's understandable. I mean, you know, if you've lost your job because of COVID, and you can make a quick two hundred quid to cover your bills for the next two months. Then I'm not going to judge people for that. Um, but I will judge people who 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 have got a van load of them and they're just mm. flogging them off. Yeah, that because that's just that's just just crap. Yeah. <laughs> that's just but, crap. That's on the very serious problem. That's just crap. <laughs> But speaking of people who've uh, hoarded a whole bunch of things, last week we spoke about uh, Amazon um, stealing packages, uh, stealing PlayStation 5s from people, uh, naughty Amazon. Uh, but now they're actually doing the right thing, and they are now arranging PlayStation 5 deliveries for customers with missing consoles. Uh, so what's the story on that, then? Was, this people were, was it the people who were packing them were stealing them, or was it the people who were delivering them were stealing them, or what was happening? People think both. The, the, they don't really know where it's happened, but there was a, we went over a story last week of an Amazon driver who um, just said it was delivered and he got caught on CCTV not delivering the PlayStation 5 that was ordered for a kid's birthday that was actually the release day of the PlayStation 5. And he drove off with it in his van. And so she took it to the depot where he worked and said, does he work here? Is this one of the drivers? And they confirmed yes. He said, right, he's driven off with our PlayStation 5. And they fired him on the spot. Um, which uh, goes to show don't mess with Amazon. Um, but all of these people have, I mean, there's thousands of people. This isn't just one person. Thousands of people have had, you know, cat food or air fryers or air straighteners <laughs> or something like that, just replaced inside. It's weird, but people are stealing these consoles because they're valuable and they can make a lot of money off them online. Yeah. There's probably, um, people, probably people, I imagine this is that, I'm thinking, I'm already thinking as a, as a film in that, that the people, the people who are doing the packing at one end are being offered an incentive from an external criminal source to say, look, if you can bring one home, there's 200 quid in it for you, you know, whatever. Because that's how it must happen, isn't it? Mm. Uh, or pack it off, or, or send it to this address, or here's my, yeah, repack something. Oh, blimey. Yeah. God. I know. What, what's the best game on PlayStation 5? What is the, because, okay, PlayStation 5 is a thing. What is it that they're buying it for? What is the what is the thing that you put in it that makes it go yes? What is it? So with, I mean, there's the there's in the gaming community. There's what's known as sort of like the console wars. It's it's it's, it's Sony versus Microsoft. So it's the PlayStation versus the Xbox. Um, and in my opinion, other people may disagree. Um, but in my opinion, the exclusive games for that for the PlayStation Five are, are in far better quality, and the storytelling behind them is astronomical. Um, there's a developer called Naughty Dog who developed uh, The Last of Us as well as um, uh, what's that, the Uncharted series. Yeah. Um, they are fantastic games, very deep storytelling, very good character development, and it, it, it graphically it looks fantastic. They really push the boundaries of the harbor, whatever it's on. Um, and there's all kinds of, I mean, there's uh, Crash Bandicoot, there's uh, Days Gone, Horizon Zero Dawn, Until Dawn, uh, loads of stuff. Very, very good all-round games. Um, and I find that the exclusives for Microsoft are a bit lacking. Yeah, sure, it's the more powerful console if you look at the teraflops and the processing power and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, um, I'm not convinced it, it, it's got the studios or the games to really win players over. But isn't a lot of the stuff now online or download? You have to go to download it anyway. Isn't it all streamed into? Isn't it all about data as well that you're online and stuff as well? 
Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, they're still selling physical discs, um, but the PlayStation 5 has got two different versions. It's got the disc version and the discless version. Uh, so the discless version is one so you, you buy games on the store and you download them onto your console. Yeah. Um, but then you don't get the ability to play Ultra HD Blu-rays and things like that. Um, but with the disc version, you can install it from a disc, you can play Blu-rays, yeah. DVDs, whatever, um, and or you can download them from the store. And it's the same with the um, the Xbox Series X and the Series S. Stupid names. But their business model is going to change because I'm sure it's going to move away from physical discs. Is where I'm kind of mm. heading. Yeah, I think they're trying to they're trying to wean people off physical media as as slowly as they can because people were very hostile towards um, Microsoft at the start of um, it was in 2012 2013 when it was announced. Uh, the Xbox One, when it first announced, they said it was always going to be online. It was They had game DRM that you can only use the discs once, and then you couldn't trade them in, you couldn't give them to friends. Um, they were trying to push this whole, like, oh, just buy it from the marketplace, then you've got it. And it was too far too early. People were very vocal about it, and Sony responded in their E3 press conference, and they said, oh, this is how you share a game. And it was the two lead people of Sony in Europe and Sony in Japan, and he, they were literally handing the game box over, and they said that's how you share a game. Um, and they were just they were just taking the piss out of um, out of Microsoft for all of their blunders that they did. Um, but I think now 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 we, more and more people have got access to the internet, more and more people have got access to unlimited internet, and it's becoming more and more of a thing. Yeah. Um, I think people are softening more to the approach of having digital media, having the, you know, you're buying the right to own this game and to download it and to have it forever and whatever. Um, some would say that what if those rights get taken away from you? What if suddenly the company goes bust and they take it away? I mean, what happens to your games? But, you know, it, it's, it's it's difficult because we are we are slowly moving towards an all digital age and we will get to the point where discs won't be sold anymore because we'll try and be as eco-friendly as possible. Yeah. Um, but I can see the I, I can I can see the merit with having digital because you can buy it from the store and download it a few days before the game's release, so it's ready to go at midnight on the day of launch. You can press X or A on the game and it just launches and it works and you're in the game and you're the first people to play it and that's that's what people live for they want to be the first yeah um and you know collector's editions are huge as well and it's 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 a huge market because it really is and you know live streaming on twitch playing video games commentating over it is huge uh and on youtube and gaming is has become something else It's, it's gone from a very niche nerdy um thing to do in sort of like the 80s and 90s and then it's it's slowly drifted as the storytelling's gotten better and better and graphics have gotten better and better it's become more and more common and more and more mainstream and now it's the norm you know it's, it's normal so, oh oh you play games oh what, what console do you have as opposed to oh you play games or you're such a nerd Ooh. but you know at, at, but at least you know with this whole amazon debacle about people getting their stuff stolen they're making it right and they're getting people these playstation 5 consoles um, and they said we've confirmed that all, basically all the people who've had issues with a lost or stolen PlayStation 5 will get one within the next two weeks. You tried to put a Blu-ray in the air fryer. <laughs> Didn't go very well. No. Quality was awful. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh dear, right. Um, well, I think that's about all we've got time for. Um, so thank you very much, Marcus, for joining us. On oh, thank the... you, Tom. It's a pleasure. It's really nice to see you again and to see you doing so well and, you know, things going good for you. I'm really pleased. So, yeah, it's really nice to catch up with you again. Thank you for inviting me. I've been really chuffed and it's been a real pleasure chatting to you. Yeah, likewise. Likewise here. It's been great to pick your brain and ask your opinion on things. Um, so if people want to get in contact with you, how can they do that? Do they find you on social media? Do you have a website? I'm MarcusRoma.com. That's R-O-M-E-R, MarcusRoma.com. I'm at MarcusRoma on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, yeah, or you just Google me, Marcus Roma, M-A-R-C-U-S-R-O-M-E-R. I can't believe I just spelled, I spelled my name out. What's wrong with me? Yeah, just Google me. <laughs> Google him. Google him. <laughs>